the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. There are some really brave people that are willing to stand up and buck the system and and not say I'm right. Just say, you know, we should think about this a little more broadly and we should we should maybe notice that maybe as we're fighting for freedom, we're actually fighting for for totalitarianism. And both sides are doing it. And there is this group of people, this intellectual dark web of people that are standing up in their own place and saying, hey, wait a minute, I'd just like to throw out another opinion. And I saw one on uh, Prager University, uh, and it, it is a video called, uh, what's this a greater leap of faith, God or the multiverse? And it's from Brian Keating. He is um, uh, the professor of physics at the University of California, San Diego. He is also the author of a new book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which we have to talk to him about. But I wanted to get him on. And, and just have him, here's a guy who is a professor of physics, to explain the multiverse, which is an unproven theory, and how it relates to people who believe in God. Welcome to the uh, uh, program, Brian. Yeah, it's great to be here with you, Glenn. Thank you. So you, this is a great Prager University uh, video. Can you just summarize it a bit? Yeah, so there's a um, a boiling, roiling uh, controversy that's pervading the normally staid academic world of cosmology, of all things, and it it actually is rekindling a, a debate that's really gone on for millennia, which is, you know, how did our universe come to be? How do we come to find ourselves as as conscious beings in a universe that we can attempt to understand? And for millennia, uh, there was no support for the Genesis 1-1 narrative that suggested that the, you know, the Big Bang or the origin of the universe uh, began at a single point in time. Even if you didn't believe it was created by a creator, there was still no evidence that the universe came, you know, had a, had a birthday, mm-hmm. shall we say. And until 1965, when astronomers were using a special kind of telescope uh, that's an ancestor to the types of telescopes that, that my group and my students and I build today, that saw heat left over from the Big Bang. And this was sort of incontrovertible evidence that the universe originated in a fiery, uh, almost explosion-like event, uh, unlike anything ever witnessed before or since. And before that time, there was literally no physical evidence for an origin event. And so people just naturally believed the universe had been around forever. This was the so-called steady state theory, which was, you know, held not only by, you know, atheists and nonbelievers. It was held by everybody, including uh, Einstein and Newton, who were, you know, devoutly, Newton was devoutly religious, as you know. And so the, the question as to what evidence people that had belief in a singular origin had there was no evidence for them, and yet they believed, and they did so on the basis of faith, and, th- and that's fine. But at least they admitted it was faith, and they didn't say that, well, we have evidence for that. Nowadays, there's a notion that the universe is not only uh, had, had a beginning, but it, uh, it, it is not only the only universe. And in order to explain the peculiar features of our universe and the improbability of the existence of conscious entities such as ourselves, uh, many of my uh, erudite colleagues have proposed a model which is every bit as revolutionary as the Big Bang you know, might have sounded uh, 55 years ago. And this is that the universe that we inhabit is not the only universe. And it is a the, the best way I've heard it described is if you 
you know, you're giving your kids a bath and there's all these soap bubbles in the, the corner of the bathtub and you kind of pick that up. They're all connected to each other, but you can't pass from one bubble to the other or they'll pop. Um, but they are a, just a yeah. big collection of of bubbles and they're more and less and they kind of come into existence and form new bubbles. And that's what it really is. And each bubble is its own separate universe. We're just one of those bubbles in that big handful. Is that right? Exactly, and it's and it's a natural, you know, phenomenon that people will have a a tendency to be biased towards and 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 you know something that would make sense to them. And in this case, what's unusual to me is that the scenario that you described is is perfectly reasonable and from a physicist's point of view. But you at least have to admit that there's currently no evidence for such a proposition. And the point that is made in the Prager University video is that. When, when the secular scientist is confronted with um, the question of whether or not to believe in God, as 70% of the most prestigious academy of sciences in the world, the National Academy of Sciences in America, they declare themselves not to be agnostic, uh, but to be atheist. And, and in that sense, you have to wonder why are they so quick to believe a theory for which there's no hard, physical, tangible, scientific method, provable evidence. And I claim that uh, in some cases, some of my colleagues are doing so in such a way as to bolster their, you know, their preconceived biases of secularism. And it's fine to be secular, Glenn. I'm not, I'm not complaining. No, I know. You know, people have, can be a conscientious you know, atheist, and that's fine. But I think to say that you're a scientist and you believe in the scientific method and religious believers and the faithful like, like us, that we, we are somehow foolish because we believe in something on the basis of faith when they have just as much faith. To, you know, I say it takes, a, it takes a fair amount of faith to be an atheist. Yeah, and I, I, think it, I really do think it does. I mean, intelligent design makes sense. To me, um, quantum physics makes no sense to me, but I believe quantum physics is pr- probably on the right direction. I mean, I have no idea when it breaks down. I haven't I've tried to understand it. It's way beyond me. It doesn't seem to make sense, but that's because everything else breaks down. So having a multiverse where there's all these different kinds of options out there and we're playing out every single option seems like science fiction. But I don't know. It might be true. So yeah, and you will trust the you will trust the the, uh, the 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 knowledge of experts such as myself when it comes to quantum physics, right? Just right. Like I I, don't, I won't do brain surgery. You know, I think I'm pretty intelligent, but I won't do brain surgery uh, on on myself. You right. know, I'll go to an expert. So what what always what always tickles me is that my my brilliant colleagues, my brilliant atheists, and I say this with with all honesty, I have utmost respect for my colleagues, even if they are secular. We get along great, and we can have a wonderful conversation over a you know a glass of a beverage of our choice, but when we do so, you know, I think it's, it's important to realize that they're not subject matter experts when it comes to religion. And most of them, if they ever did practice religion, you know, probably gave it up when they were about 13 or so. And so they're left with a 13-year-old's understanding of, of the, you know, of this immense, immense thing. You know, I know you've written a lot of books, and, and that's wonderful, and I just wrote my first, and that's the only one I may ever write. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, what they say, you know, I'd I trade, and, and I'm sure you believe this, you know, if you could trade, a, a, you know, a one reader 100 years from now for 100 readers tomorrow, you would do that in a second, because it would mean your ideas are timeless. And in the case of something like, you know, Stephen Hawking, the late, great Stephen Hawking, who wrote a book, A Brief History of Time, that book, um, you know, I hope it's not relevant in 100 years, because I hope that we've made tremendous scientific progress. Right. But if you look at the Bible, the Bible had to speak 30 
30 centuries ago, and it has to speak 30 centuries from now. How many books can do that? Yeah. And so when people and my colleagues, brilliant you know, men and women, when they reject it because it, you know, and they erect a straw man and, and burn it down, that's the problem that I have with them, and that they were so willing to accept the lack of evidence for something in which, you know, really may never be provable, not even has no evidence now, but may not be physically impossible to prove. It's, it's a little bit nerv- nervous. So today, uh, there's a lot of talk of uh, the possibility of President Trump winning a uh, peace prize, a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, because uh, hostages have been released in North Korea. Looks like we're on the right track for peace there. A lot of people are poo-pooing this, but he's already accomplished more than Barack Obama did when he got a Nobel Peace Prize for his hopes and aspirations, uh, which I think was kind of a low point for the Nobel uh, Prize, but uh, who am I to judge? Uh, Brian Keating has has just written a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. This is a story of, of actual science, and what the award was actually uh, deemed to uh, promote. And it starts with something that you created with your team called uh, BICEP. Can you tell me what BICEP is? Yeah, BICEP is a telescope. uh, And like all telescopes, it's also a time machine. So, you know, light travels extremely rapidly. It's the fastest uh, velocity that that anything can possibly reach. uh, And yet it's not infinite. So when we look back in space, we're seeing things the way that they were not instantaneously. So you remember, or you've seen footage, you're not old enough maybe to remember, but the moon landings, uh, the astronauts would communicate back and forth with radios, and it would take about a second and a half to get to the moon because the moon is a quarter million miles away. So that delay is a responsibility uh, of the uh, finite speed of light. So what happens is, and radio waves are just another form of light. Uh, so what, what happens is when you look back in space, you're looking back in time. What I wanted to do with this telescope and my colleagues and I wanted to do is build a telescope that could look back where there's no moons in the way, there's no sun in the way, there's no planets or stars or galaxies or anything else in our way. And then you could look back theoretically to the beginning of time. And if we were to do so, we were told not only would we capture really the birth pangs of the Big Bang, you know, what, what caused the Big Bang to bang, if you will, uh, but we would also uh, most assuredly receive a Nobel Prize for the efforts. And it took us to the very bottom of the world, the telescope bicep an acronym um, that's not worth getting into here, but the acronym uh, really referred to the, the job of the telescope was to measure these patterns called curl patterns in this ancient heat left over from the Big Bang called the cosmic microwave background. And so if we did that, the, uh, the telescope had to be brought to a very special place. And it was in this case, it was brought to the very bottom of the world, the South Pole, Antarctica. And so I describe in the book what it's like to go to the South Pole. You know, currently in the South Pole, the entire continent of Antarctica, you know, there's only about a thousand people on an entire continent, much bigger than the state of Texas. Um, And so it's quite a a forbidding location to go to. And we built it there because the telescope needs to be in a place that's very dry and very cold. And the South Pole is very cold, and it's also at uh, 10,000 feet above sea level. So it's very dry and above most of the water vapor in our atmosphere. So it made the perfect perch to search for the Big Bang's earliest aftershocks. So did you find them? We did find them. We, you know, it's surprising. When you go out and look for something, oftentimes you find it, even if you're a dispassionate scientist. Well, we didn't know at the time, and we made this big announcement on St. Patrick's Day 2014. It was covered you know, above the fold, as they say, in every major newspaper in the world, uh, because it was, it was thought to be you know, as far back in human history, in not human history, in cosmic history, that human beings could ever glimpse. And, uh, and immediately the Nobel whispers began. Uh, unfortunately, what turned out to happen is that 
our discovery was uh, was sort of mixed with with a signal that comes not from the cosmos, not from the Big Bang, but from what's called dust. So so I know you have kids, I have kids, and you know a cloud of dust surrounds your kids at all times. At least they do for my boys. <laughs> and and when that is, but it's not the same dust that's in the Milky Way galaxy. And this is a special type of dust. This is dust in our galaxy that was produced from the death explosion of a star called a supernova. And what's so poetic about it is, you know, just like the uh, the, the Bible accounts, you know, the, the you know ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So the dust that that you know the Bible poetically and metaphorically speaks of as being the formation of human beings, actually true. So there's actually flowing through your veins, your listeners' veins right now is stardust, and it's stardust that was created in the beginning of time when when the universe, uh, or not in the beginning of time, when our galaxy produced a star that exploded and spewed forth this iron that that uh, now is the hemoglobin inside of your blood. So in our, in our bodies flows dust, and in the cosmos does too, and this dust obscured the signal that we were looking for. So we eventually, embarrassingly, had to retract our discovery, mm. and our Nobel dreams literally turned to dust. And so your concern about the Nobel Prize is that uh, it's, it's become what? It's become very politicized, become very vaunted as, as societies, not just science's ultimate accolade, but on all of, so, all of society. There's nothing as prestigious as a Nobel Prize, which is why there's so much controversy, you know, uh, heaven forbid that, that Donald Trump would win a Nobel Prize. You know, he would join the likes of, you know, Yasser Arafat and, 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 and <laughs> <laughs> or, or, all these know, other great men. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I, you know, I would, I would advise him not to hold his breath because it's, I, I doubt it's likely. I was asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize two years ago. And when I did so, I found out a whole bunch of scary things that the Nobel Prize Committee was doing that was really sullying the literal noble vision, L.E. vision of Alfred Nobel. And it, it really troubled me. So I set out in part, the book is written not only that the way to describe the way that my team lost our own Nobel Prize, but that parts of the Nobel Prize and maybe even the Nobel Prize itself needs to be lost. Because of what it's doing to science and society. Wow. Currently, right now, there's a sex scandal rocking the Nobel Prize in literature. There's a financial crimes investigation unit probing it. They might cancel the Nobel Prizes. From wow. The orders. Wow. I, I, I have to tell you, I cannot wait to read the book. It's called <laughs> Losing the Nobel Prize. Brian Keating is the author and esteemed scientist that lost the Nobel Prize. Uh, and you can pick his book up. It's available everywhere now. Losing the Nobel Prize. Thanks, Brian. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network.